0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. I'm Brendan O'Brien, and today's the 1st of November 2020. Each month, we bring you two fabulous episodes. At the top of each month, we have an interview with a respected astronomer, astrophysicist, space scientist, or particle physicist. Then, in the middle of the month, we bring you Dr. Ian Musgrave's Sky Guide for the next four weeks, where he previews celestial observations for naked eye observers telescopers and astrophotographers. We also include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible as we work our way through this COVID-19 crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. So right now, we've got a fabulous interview for you. Enjoy. (whistles) Hello, Rami. Hello, Brendan. Today, we're doing an interview I've been looking forward to all year. We're zooming up to Sydney, Australia, to speak with Rami Mando, the founder of SpaceAustralia.com the creator of an amazing citizen science project that has teams from all over the world constructing amateur radio telescopes. And Rami is also doing his Masters in Astronomy and Astrophysics at Swinburne University. How he's found time to speak with us, I don't know. But thanks for speaking with us, Rami. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, you can say I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller, Brendan. I'm, uh, I'm actually really honoured that we're actually getting a chance to have this chat.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, so before we talk about your citizen science project, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Rami, and tell us when and how you first became interested in science and space?
1: Yeah, Sure. So I was actually born in Baghdad, Iraq, but I came to Australia when I was only a few months old, I think three or four months old, so very young, so I don't remember much of it. So for the first half of my life, I kind of grew up in a suburb in western Sydney called Fairfield, and it's a place where my mum still lives today, but it's pretty much a suburban Sydney. So unfortunately, a lot of the lights took away a lot of the night sky, so I didn't really see the stars growing up. Also back then... I didn't really have much influence in space or anything sciencey, to be honest because growing up in a migrant community, parents who were just trying to make ends meet in a new country um, made it kind of harder for them to say, yes, follow your passions, but instead they sort of encouraged us to look for work, sorry, you know, drilled into us that we would actually have to find jobs to make our life much better in the future. So my first actual encounter was a bit of a morbid one, to be honest. And um, it it, it kind of triggered off a lot of things for me, but it was a little bit morbid if I look back at it now. But my first encounter with space was sadly the Challenger disaster. And I was six years old at the time in nineteen eighty-six. And I remember it happening. And I remember, like, on the next day on the news, seeing it on the news and and mum sort of being really emotional about it. And I was wondering why, like, what was going on? you know, why was it emotional and why were these people on a spaceship and why did they pass away and why are they leaving a planet and what's outside of the actual planet? So the, the childhood um you know event actually really caused a, a big sort of shift in my mind at such a young age to say, hey, there's something really interesting here that happened to these people, which is sad, but there's there's a question of why that I want to follow up with then as well. Now, in the same year, um, you know, we also had Halley's Comet um coming around a few months later. And I remember my year one teacher, Miss Hamilton, further um, piqued my interest. I guess um, when she said we, we made sort of kites they made of cellophane and paper. i was Hallie's comments. So they had the long tails made of cellophane, and she said something to me in particular. In particular and I don't remember the exact wording again, but she said um, something like, "You're very lucky. You're going to be able to see this twice: once now, and then once when I'm not here anymore. When you're much older. When you're older than me." And by that point, I was like, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> like, I was like, there's something actually that's really, you know, amazing. It's happening here. You know, there's a comment coming, and you know, these people have unfortunately passed away. Space just happened to be a lot, a big thing for me in 1986. And so that was kind of my first experience of space, and that sort of changed path of my life, I guess, in terms of my thinking. You know, now, following after that, I kept my eye on things. And I was only young. I was like 7, you know, ten, nine, seven nine, 10, 11, 12-ish, as all this stuff was happening. But um, following after that, I sort of started noticing things in the news a bit more. Like in 1987, there was like that supernova that happened. And in 89, which I remember this quite clearly, um, You know, Neptune was visited for the first time by Voyager. And I remember in, uh, I think, 94, 95-ish, when uh, Shoemaker Levy um, sort of you know, hammered into... Uh, uh, Jupiter and then Galileo arrived and into Jupiter and then Cassini left in 97. So there's a whole chain of events that started happening after I was fixated on space. Um, so by the time I left high school, I was well and truly into space and into science.
0: That's a fantastic introduction, Rami. So after that successful school career, you went into the superannuation, the financial planning and the banking industries from about 10 years, I think, and then it's off to university where you were awarded distinctions for your MBA, and then you worked in digital and social media businesses and on international projects. You set up a not-for-profit organisation and developed digital strategies and campaigns for government. Your future looked settled on paper, but now you've gone and thrown a... Banner, and it's the most fantastic spanner you've thrown in the works by retraining as an astrophysicist and setting up spaceaustralia.com. So let's first talk about your disengagement with the world of commerce, Australia's re-engagement with space and your fabulous space website and the connection between the three. Over to you, Rami.
1: <laughs> yeah it's funny you should mention that i mean i, I literally decided two years ago that i'll stop everything i was doing and start fresh from scratch that's kind of a scary thought but i'll explain sort of what, what my thought process was and why I, why I made this and why i took this big leap of faith i guess so you know my corporate career was actually really taking off and believe it or not that's probably the reason why i left and i know that sounds crazy but it's it's it it, it, it was going so well that i thought hang on, I'm, I'm going to be doing this forever. I'm not going to be doing what I want to do. So I was working, you know, after working in several roles across and different management roles, and different things, you know, across different sectors, so charities and self-employment and government, I actually was offered a really good gig at the government job I was in. And it was basically, they said to me, look, you're going to, if you, if you go for the new role that's coming up, which is your director's role, because she had just left, you know, you're pretty much going to get it. At the time, I was managing like 18 people in my team and, you know, multi-million dollar budgets and, it, I was, I had, and building fantastic digital projects as well for the New South Wales government. Now, I, I stood there and I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity. It's a wonderful salary package. You know, it's, I'll be very comfortable, I'll be very happy on it if I take the role as in, in, the, in government as a director. But then and there, I knew if I did, because I like when I, when I take a job, I like dedicating myself to it. I don't like just taking it and then walking away. I knew then and there that if I took it, I'd be there for another two years and then beyond that, I'd probably go for another role, which would be another two years. And in the back of my mind, I kept saying to myself, that's not really your passion. Like, that's not what you want to do. That's not what you ever wanted to do. All you've ever wanted to do is work in space. So why don't you go do that? So I took that massive leap of faith and I literally quit my job and enrolled in my masters. Now, I can't tell you how terrifying it is to experience a, a drop of income um, that goes from X amount to zero overnight. It, it, you, know, it, you kind of question your decisions and you think, should I have made that decision and, or you know, was it the right thing to do? But I'm very fortunate to have the support and resources around me and people around me uh, to have made such a drastic uh, decision. And I acknowledge that there's not many people out there that have that opportunity as well. So I count my lucky stars every day. But I guess that's where my space journey really started. Um, it started 20 years after I left school and after I'd been working in a corporate career in different areas of corporate in the corporate world, I decided to come back to space. And here I am now.
0: Fantastic. That's a great, <laughs> a great story. Now, I also really love watching Australia's space industry stretching their wings in concert with our fledgling space agency. Now. We will get into the nitty-gritty of astrophysics and radio telescope construction very soon. But first, Rami, spaceaustralia.com. Can you tell us about its genesis, the thinking behind it, um, the platform you built it with, your awesome team you work with? uh, I've seen some of them. And what can visitors expect to get from spaceaustralia.com?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So firstly, I just want to preface this by saying that um, spaceaustralia.com is uh, not my platform. Um, Whilst the platform I'm building and whilst the platform I started, it's not my platform. I consider it a platform for everyone and for everyone's voice to be shared. And that's why I love getting the community involved with the platform itself. So as I mentioned earlier, on, I had a lot of experience under my belt, you know, starting a couple of businesses and learning a lot from them as well. About two years before I left my job in the government, I started noticing a bit more activity across some of the space channels that I keep my eye on, like the space industry of Australia and, uh, you know, a few bits and pieces around the country that were going on. So I thought I'd start some research that eventually would have lasted about two years. um, And I wanted to test the idea that there was appetite for a dedicated social or a dedicated space community platform, I should say, and what that platform looked like. So I hired a research house and we ran focus groups, we ran surveys um, online and offline, we ran interviews, etc. And for about two years, we tested the market, wanting to find out what kind of space community platform they wanted, uh, what that looks and feels like, but also what sort of products they wanted to have, what we want to offer from now and into the future as well. During this time, uh, the data was really coming in and showcasing that, we w- that there was an opportunity there that we, we should take up and that was going to be Space Australia. And this is about the time that the space agency was launched. I can't remember the exact year, I think it was 2018, if I remember correctly. So we kind of knew that we were on the right track once that happened as well, cause we thought, hang on, these guys are launching as well. So the research is showing that's going to happen as well. Eventually we had enough data to actually build a platform. And uh, from that, from all that research, we took that and we built our first phase We went live a year ago, mid October-ish in 2019. So and that one, that's, we went live with what, what, what's the first phase of the platform, which is the news platform of Space Australia. Now, since going live last year, we have built up a team of eight writers across um, all states and each write their own uh, sort of regions and news and, and, and publications. We've had about 350 published articles on the site, which includes 50 feature essays. Now, the feature essays are in-depth 2,000 word science essays that are written for the purpose of education and for sharing new research and driving that inspiration to uh, the younger audiences around the country about what fantastic work we are doing here in Australia. Um, we've got regular community science community, uh, com- contributors, sorry. Um, you know, professors and PhDs and community members who have their voice on that. And we share people's podcasts like this one on our platform as well. We at, I actually looked at my numbers just a few nights ago. Because it's been about a year, and I don't really concentrate much on the numbers because I'm not really a KPI kind of person when it comes to things like, you know, how many hits do we get on a site? But we have had a wonderful, you know, almost a round number of 60,000 unique viewers on our site, which doesn't seem like a lot when you think about all the big websites out there, like, you know, the news media websites. But when you put it into perspective that we spent nothing on advertising, maybe like 500 bucks or so, and this has been driven through word of mouth and through social media... 60,000 hits for a new platform is actually not bad. But honestly, as I said, it's not something I like to you know, count as a KPI. Instead, of, I, my, my sort of measures are, how much inspiration are we providing to the community, um, how much engagement are we getting from them, how many writers are writing for us, etc. And it's also, it's, it's one of the reasons why, people, why you'll find it has more of a community tone rather than a news channels or well, the platform itself. We want to, you know, we want people in the space community to make our site somewhere they can go to find out about all the cool science and all the cool research and all the cool news from the Australian space community, and hopefully share some of that knowledge around younger audiences to get them to make those decisions to jump into a space career when they grow up. Much like the decisions I didn't make when I was when I was younger, I didn't have those influences around me. And lastly, um, and probably the most important one to me is making sure that we lift the voices of minorities like women and people of colour and Aboriginal Australians and Torres Strait Islanders and LGBTIQA people, giving them a platform, it's a science platform, a space science platform, to enable their research and and their knowledge out into the uh, the greater community.
0: Yep, it's fantastic. And it really has become both the launch pad and the landing platform for all things space in Australia in a very short time. Uh, Congratulations. Now, let's get back to your studies now. Swinburne University in Melbourne, and their Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing has become famous for building so many fabulous careers and research breakthroughs. I know we can't yet talk about your research with the Parkes Pulsar Timing Project, but hopefully we'll get you back on Astrophys over the summer break to do a special episode about that. But right now, Rami, can you tell us about your master's course in general And I'd also be interested to hear uh, what sort of units are being covered there and how COVID-19 has impacted on your studies. And uh, what's the timeline for a master's course like yours? And do you do a thesis or a major research project? How does it all work? Yeah, sure. So I'm about halfway through my master's program at
1: the moment, uh, which is a master's by coursework program. That's offered through Swinburne University online. I'm personally finding it, re, and you've probably seen me talk about this online quite a bit, but I'm really, really enjoying it. But at the same time, I'm finding it very challenging as well. So unlike a lot of the folks at my level, um, I don't come from a science background. I come from a business background. So I'm having to reteach myself a lot of the math and a lot of the physics along the way. But I am throwing everything I have at it, and, and, and I am absolutely loving it. So um, I think my master's should finish probably by the end of next year if all goes well. And I'm currently taking my stellar astrophysics class and tools of modern astronomy class as well. And during the course of this master so far, which is about a year and a half into it so far, we've covered a breadth of topics you know, related to galaxies and to stars and to planetary science. And one of my favourite subjects so far was the history of astronomy as well. And it did allow me to have a bit more of an in-depth look at the history of astronomy within my own culture, which is the Assyrian culture, um, you know, some famous astronomers from way back when. We started to move more into mini-research kind of projects. Uh, so our major works for each subject's previous were essays, but now they become mini-research projects. And it's allowed me to explore some fascinating topics, including, you know, something, as I said, one of my favourite topics was the history of astronomy subject. And for my major work, I looked at the ancient cultures um, observing variable stars with the naked eye. And in particular, I looked at the Assyrian, Egyptian and Aboriginal Australian cultures are detecting variability in red supergiant stars. Um, and it's something that we all experienced last year, right? And when Betelgeuse started dimming. And so it was, it was lovely to see, actually see that research you know, talk hand in hand whilst Betelgeuse was actually dimming. Currently at the moment, I'm doing a little bit of research in terms of the uh, some pulsar, pulsar work on for the pulsar timing team. Um, but as you said, we could talk about that in the future. And as you know, and as many people would know, I've got a huge thing for pulsars. So um, I've always wanted to be a pulsar astronomer when I grew up. Um, and so I'm mm-hmm. now slowly out- working towards that goal. In terms of the actual COVID stuff, I, I guess it's made it a little bit harder for me personally. I'm not sure I can't speak for everyone. But obviously, You know, it's mentally, it's all been mentally exhausting and trying to really study, you know, while the world's been set alight has been really hard. I'm also very naturally a social person. And so not being able to interact with my friends and go out and sort of have some downtime away from my studies uh, has meant that it's been a bit harder for me to focus during my study times as well. So that's kind of the impact on me. Uh, But I did actually find a new outlet um, for it to channel that, (laughs) my, my new hobby, I guess and astrophotography and I'm actually really enjoying that going to the roof when I can and taking some photos of some deep space stuff and it's pretty amazing what I can get from uh, not far away from the Sydney CBD lights.
0: Fantastic thanks for that now that sounds like a really great broad program of studies that also allows you to specialize would you like to take a deep dive into one of the research topics that got your head spinning and should I put on my propeller hat now?
1: Yeah, I'd love to, actually. So what I, I won't talk about my current research project, but as you mentioned, I'd love to come back and talk about it in the future. Um, but what I do want to talk about is one from my last semester, which I really enjoyed writing, and it was actually quite fun to learn about this stuff as well and look at a whole range of research. And that, in particular, was for planetary science, and the topic was, um, you know, does Planet X exist? Uh. So just to frame what this is, basically, you know, Planet X is a hypothetical planet that is predicted to exist, well beyond the orbit of Neptune out at the outer edges of our solar system. Sometimes people refer to it as Planet Nine as well. I'm sure you've heard of it, Brendan.
0: Oh, yes. Yes. And there's some myths about it as well.
1: Yeah. yeah well, I mean, the reason why some people think that exists is because there's been a few minor bodies out there at these great distances. Um, and they, they exhibit these certain orbital parameters that can be explained by placing a large mass out of this at this distance. But from the research I did last semester, I came to the conclusion that, uh, if some, that no such body could exist. And it's probably a result of our observational bias that makes us believe that it does. Um, so I'm going to do a little bit of a deep dive here. And I'll start at the very top to give you a bit of a background. Uh, but it's basically what my research found as well. Yep. So throughout uh, history, you know, there's been a number of main bodies in the solar system that, that have changed. And the, the reason why they've changed is because we've learned more about them over time. Uh, To begin with, obviously, there was, you know, the five planets were known, were the only planets for thousands of years because, you know, the telescope wasn't invented. And then when the telescope was invented, you know, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn were also included. Shortly after that, you know, Uranus and Neptune were discovered and then followed by Pluto. And then officially everyone ended with the nine planets around 1930 or so. Funny enough, you know, at some point around, I think it was 1680s, there was a total of 18 bodies included as a definition of a planet based on, you know, including the asteroids that were discovered around them as well. And then, of course, that big controversy in 2006. uh, Our beloved Pluto was demoted uh, by the IAU. And there's a lot of people who have strong feelings about this one. But, you know, what was interesting about that decision was that the IAU made three sort of postulates to define a planet. And the first was a planet must orbit a sun. The second is... The planet must have sufficient gravity to deform itself into a sphere, a process known as hydrostatic equilibrium. And lastly, the planet must have cleared its orbit along its um, orbital path. Now, uh, these requirements came from the discovery of bodies buddy, much like Pluto, and one in particular uh, called Eris, which was a bit further out than Pluto and roughly about the same size. I think it might be slightly bigger or just slightly smaller, but it exists just beyond the orbit of, you know, outside of the orbit of Neptune. And the IAU basically said, well, look, if there's all these bodies out there, there's probably millions of these bodies out there, and we can't call them all planets, can we? Now, a lot of people have a lot of feelings about that. But in particular, you know, one thing that intrigued me about this when I was studying is that there's a particular subset of these bodies uh, known as TNOs, or trans-Neptunian objects. And they exist, obviously, beyond the orbit of Neptune. In fact, many of them actually have a resonance with Neptune. Now the inner torus of this of, of these bodies just past Pluto is known as a Kuiper belt. Uh, and it contains the main portion of these TNOs. Uh, but there's also an outer scattered disk which has several objects, and these are known as extreme trans-Neptunian objects or ETNOs. Uh, recently, you know, we had some wonderful data coming from the New Horizons spacecraft as it left, sorry, as it, as it you know, sailed past Pluto and then. It, uh, headed towards another one, another trans, another sorry, another Kuiper Belt object called, and I can never pronounce this name. I think it's Arakuf, Arakuf, which is another small body out there. And you know we've got a lot of data about that, but they are kind of the only two bodies we've ever visited um, out in the Kuiper Belt. The outer ETNOs, the ones that I'm interested in, are actually much, much, much further out. You know, they're out their semi-major access is 250 astronomical units or AUs. And to give you some frame of reference, Voyager 2 is only about 124 AU from the Sun. So they're roughly about double this distance, which is pretty far out. Now, the ETNOs themselves are also classed into different batches, and there's you know the first batch which are influenced by Neptune's orbit, you know, through resonance, as they, you know, as they get closer to um, Neptune, sorry, as, as their point of their orbit which gets close to the Sun is close to Neptune, they're influenced by Neptune there's actually a smaller population who actually live much, much further away. And I, of them, there's only three ever discovered. And one of those is called Sedna. And so it's on, they're on these huge orbits, you know, thousands and thousands of years before them to go around the sun. So for us to understand how these objects came to be at great distances, we need to also consider the early sto- solar system formation models. Um, and in particular, two main players that change the shape of our solar system, and, you know, Jupiter's obviously one of them, and Jupiter gets a big rap about this. But the other player, I think, is Neptune, which doesn't get much of a say about this, and I, I kind of love Neptune for this reason. But there's a theory known as the Grand track theory in which the, uh, the gas and the ice giants start to form at some distance, but then Jupiter decides to migrate towards the sun, dragging Saturn along with it. So not away from the sun, but towards the sun. Then, being Jupiter, decided to, uh, you know, change its mind and start moving away from the sun. And then, as it did that, it pushed Saturn a bit further around and which then pushed Uranus a bit further out, which then pushed Neptune a bit further out as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and during both these migrations, all these giant planets, especially Jupiter, um, slingshot a whole bunch of comets and minor bodies in all different directions around the solar system, out of these great distances. Now, there's a, there's a there's a larger, just like the inner ring that we have for asteroids, um, when Neptune, as it was moving outwards by Jupiter's you know, pushing outwards as well, it passed through this primordial outer ring. And it started to force some of these bodies into these further massive objects or into a sink with its own orbit itself. And these things will eventually settle down and we're left with a Kuiper belt and some of the ETNOs we see today. Now here's where planet X comes in. And this is where it gets really interesting. By studying the orbits of these ETNOs in particular those three really extreme objects or even some of the further objects as well. Some scientists have found some alignment in their orbital parameters especially around, you know, their inclination of orbit and, and the point where they're close to the sun. And to explain this sort of anomaly, the scientists said that there must be an undiscovered mass out there that's causing these objects to align in the way that we observe them. And, you know, from that's, 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 their, that's, their, that's their position by observing these different extreme objects. looking at them and saying well there must be something causing them to behave this way and orbit this way and and cluster in in this manner. Now by looking at these clustering and the orbital movement of these objects we can start to derive some really interesting data about Planet X. Uh, So for example we know it should based on the orbits of these objects of these ETNOs we know it should have a mass range between five to ten times that of Earth. We also know its radius should be about two to t- four times that of Earth. And its semi-major axis is about 400 to 800 AU, which means it completes like one orbit, one entire year of its, of its cycle, maybe somewhere between 10,000 and 20,000 Earth years. So then we first have to consider things like, how does that planet even get out there? You know, with such a high mass, five to 10 Earth masses, you know, how did it, there just wasn't enough material in the outer solar system, for it to form out there and remain out there. So, the, the, next, the next theory is basically that it formed inside the solar or in, within the inner region of the solar system and it was tossed out by either Jupiter or by Neptune out to these great distances. So, what I did was actually had a look at this existing research and then calculate some of these parameters, which is kind of fun. So, I looked at things like, you know, took some assumptions, obviously, like in a bit two to four times Earth radius. And then I calculated its surface area, its volume, its gravity, how much sunlight it would get, its parallax angle, uh, its radiating temperature, and even how much influence it would have on the solar system barycenter. And the results that I sort of looked at revealed two very different worlds. And, and when I say two, I looked at two models the lower range model of you know, 400 AU and the upper range model of 800 AU. And in the lower range model, you know, planet X would be about as dense as Mars. It's, you know, it's got a small solid core, it's surrounded by superionic liquids, and it's enveloped uh, by a compact atmosphere. But in the second model, it was a bit, it'd be a bit more like Saturn. It was much less dense, and it had a much more prominent atmospheric envelope. Now, in both cases, due to its size, its mass, its gravity, and, and the distance from the sun, an atmosphere would likely be retained on Planet X as it would have formed beyond the solar snow line. And it's likely going to have an atmosphere or properties uh, that are similar to the ices that we see out beyond the solar snow line. So much like what we see in Neptune. So it might even be kind of bluish if if we were able to see it. So that's what I started thinking to myself, how can we detect something like this? How can we actually find such a distance, such a cold, and from our perspective, such a small world? The first thing is we can't go there. It's going to be impossible for us to travel. There with current propulsion methods, but you know, should we ever invent the warp drive, which probably would be a good place to first go. I consider different kinds of observations. You know, The first was invisible light and from Earth and even using things like adaptive optics, and I figured it would be probably too small to resolve given its such small size. You know, Even Hubble would probably find it too small to resolve in the visual bands. And there's probably more of a chance of it being discovered in infrared bands. So Something like the James Webb Space Telescope, when that gets up um, into space, and I think it's going to go up next year, I read, then that might be a better option to sort of look for this thing, but it will still be very challenging. You know, another thing that we could do is this thing's so far away, that it will be radiating at such a cold temperature that we might be able to see it in the millimeter bands. You know, so using an instrument like ALMA, looking at cold sort of temperatures out there in, in the universe, I and mean, we might be able to see it. In doing so, it would be hard to tell if it's a planet or just one of the thousands upon thousands of you know cold bodies that exist out there as well. Indirectly, we could probably try to use frames and captures in optical infrared to see if there's any particular objects that present a certain parallax over the course of our year. So we could sort of take photographs throughout the year and if we just find something that's dotting back and forth from our perspective, Based on a parallax angle to produce that might be you know a way to observe it, or another way might be um, you know the brightening of a background star in our line of sight caused by the gravitational lensing as the planet uh, as planet X you know jumped in front of the star. And lastly, and this is one I found most interesting, could we detect the plant, the, the mass of the planet having a, a, a impact on the solar system and by looking at pulsar signals as well. And that's something I'd like to talk to you. But it takes time, I come back and chat with you. Um, so you know, looking at all these options and the you know, ways that we can and can't—sorry, ways that we can detect it directly or indirectly—I started to dig into some of the research I think being produced about Planet X, and there were some great results that came out. And this is what kind of firmed up my opinion. It was—I looked at a whole bunch of different research from different sort of telescopes and different methods, and they all came to the same or similar conclusion. So first I looked at all the papers, by all a bunch of papers by the uh, International Pulsar Timing Array folks, and there's nothing in there so far. So there's no signal in the, in the solar system that says that there should be a mass out there of X amount. Now in saying so, Jupiter and Saturn probably had the most impact on the solar system when it comes to pulsar timing. And we've got years of Jupiter's orbit, sorry, we've got, we've got several Jupiter orbits worth of data, but well, we haven't got a full Saturnian orbit as yet um, because Saturn orbits every 29 years and we haven't been collecting enough data since so I think we should revisit this question especially the pulsar timing question in terms of planet x once we have a full Saturn orbit um, of data of pulsar data in particular. Huh. I also looked at in the, wild, the wide field infrared survey explorer um, observatory research and you know that data sort of said that there were zero masses of Jupiter or Saturn size which were detected out to 20,000 AU. And I'm pretty sure that that space-based observatory did a big scan, but most of the sky as well. I looked at the Gaia data, and, and that has, you know, the capability of picking up Jupiter massive object-creating micro-lensing events out to 2,000 AU. And again, there was no signal on Planet X. I looked at seven years' worth of Catalina Sky Survey data across both hemispheres, which should have picked up any objects with magnitudes 19.4 and above. And again, there was nothing. I looked at the Cassini data, um, in particular uh, Saturn's mass data from Cassini, uh, which is a good indication of, you know, the planet's mass as all over the pathway. And it too showed no anomalies that were present with an existing planet X. And in fact, during my research, when I was looking at Saturn stuff, it was quite funny because I came across JPL's website and they specifically kind of go out of their way to specify there is no planet X, but I'm not too sure of the background of why they make such an effort about that, which I found quite funny. One of the other reports I looked at was the Dark Energy Survey report. And um, you know, they detected, they've actually found several TNOs, several Trans-Neptunian objects. But again, no mention of Planet X. Um, and in this particular study that I found quite interesting was the Outer Solar System Origin Survey, uh, which has found hundreds of um, TNOs and written many papers about this. And that, collab- sorry, that collaboration actually stated that there was particularly no planet X and instead it was our observational bias. So based on all these excellent studies conducted and all this research that exists out there and all my research of the research, including the, you know, the upper and lower range limits of the hypothetical planet that I created, I decided you know, I've, I've got enough information here to make a call But there probably isn't a planet X based on what I've found so far. But you know, I could be wrong and I'm always open to that as well. I think I remember some interesting theory not too long ago um, about a primordial black hole, probably the size of of a baseball living out there, Um, but that was kind of shot down rather quickly as well. I mean, I think there's some opportunity maybe to explore if Planet X physically exists by by imaging it uh, with some of the upcoming large telescopes that are being built. So, for example, the Vera Rubin Observatory or the Giant Magellan Telescope or the EELT, now, the wonderful thing about these um, instruments is that they can they can they can take a photo of the whole sky or whole region of the sky over several nights and come back and do it all again, you know, a few nights later and then do it all again a few nights later. So if there is an object there that produces a parallax angle or that produces that, that does show movement against background stars like a transient event, then these telescopes are the ones that are going to probably see it first as well. So in summary, and to wrap up, I guess uh, my deep dives over, but effectively. My opinion is, based on the research I've covered,
0: there is no Planet X. Well, let's just take a twist in another direction, Rami. Your background is rich with digital technologies and your previous work as a social media analyst. What's happening in the world of social media and astronomy? And... Or perhaps I should be asking, what should be happening in the world of social media and astronomy?
1: It's, uh, it's such an interesting space, isn't it? It's just it's changing so rapidly that we as humans can't keep up. <laughs> and watching its evolution over the last 10 years, from my perspective, especially since I've been in that industry for about 10 years, has been fascinating to watch, to say the least you know i started my own digital social media agency 10 years ago i've worked in social media intelligence in finance in integrated social media in not-for-profit and government and that kind of taught me a lot about you know where the digital world was what how it was reacting to certain things where it was going next and what what you know what was the ins and outs of it and one thing i learned from all that was there are no experts in this field there are no people who say that they're the best at social media and you know and, and can make that call because by the time you become the best at the current social media, it's already evolved way past what you were the best at and it's just, it's just moved on. You know, and it's, I think social media is actually a good thing um, overall. You know, it can be used for a force of good, so through connections and through, um, you know, outsourcing part kind of our brains that handles the relationships aspect. Uh, but there is obviously a dark side of it, as we've seen, with, you know, severe online bullying, harassment, you know, the rise of hate groups and stuff like that. It's all, you know, a really nice example of the connections that social has made. Is you know some of the messages of positivity and empowerment uh, that are driven by people like celebrities, for example, um, when they're pushing social good messages. Quite early on in my when I started that charity, we it was an anti-bullying charity, and we randomly made a video of Sydney Mardi Gras, and we shared it on Twitter and on Facebook, and you know, Lady Gaga and Kylie Minogue loved it so much that they ended up sharing onto their network. And that was a great thing. That went to 90 million people, which is amazing in itself. But if it, a reach we'd never have, and it. it was a message of good. And, you know, when you look at things like, I guess, looking back at, in the history of social media, things like the Arab Springs, you know, where there several Middle Eastern countries were liberated from their uh, dictator leaders, that was also driven by social media. So someone could say that was good as well. But then you've got you know, the rapid distribution of misinformation, which can really affect what we see and what we and how we behave and can, be, can prove quite deadly. And sadly, it's report, as we've all seen. A prime example of that is the current US president spreading lies on Twitter, and that has proven deadly. So social media, for me, is a powerful tool. It's almost like it's, it's if, you, if you're you a Lord of the Rings fan, it's uh, the ring of power. And the person who wields it can do much good but much malice with it as well. But, look, I mean, some that's... There's some wonderful, wonderful examples that I can give you of people driving social good through social media. So um, I'll just name a few off the top of my head. Look at the work of Deadly Science and how Corey and his team are able to reach so many young Aboriginal Australian children uh, to learn about science. Uh, Look at the work of Lisa Harvey-Smith working in reaching, and empowering young women across the country to join uh, her STEM activities and, and, and empowering women to get involved in STEM activities as well, changing the future. Through a very fun way. Um, education's being redefined by people like Kirsten Banks, you know, through her TikToks. Or even look at people like Kat Ross, who, you know, who's using her influence online, you know, to, to, to build long-term sustainable change in how women are perceived in the education curriculum. Uh, so, you know, there's so much good that we can do with social media as well. Uh, and that, I think I think the, the way that things are going, the best social media stuff I've seen so far has been the science education stuff and, People like I said, like Kirsten, doing fun, to
0: more small bites of information has been really wonderful to watch. Fantastic. Well, also getting it right and doing the right things important in social media. Like the International Astronomical Unit's just been discovering. Okay, now, mm-hmm. now back to you, Rami, and looking at your output. Your master's is only a fraction of the work you're doing. You've got multiple projects happening and. One in particular caught my eye, Citizen Science Radio Telescope Construction. Now, 22 years ago, NASA started an educational program, and we've just been talking about education, called Radio Jove, which involved students and amateurs constructing backyard antennas to eavesdrop on Jupiter and its moon Io. Um, You've raised the bar to a galactic level. Can you tell us about this project and whether listeners can still become involved? Tell us about your Citizen Science Radio Telescope Construction Project.
1: Yes, that's actually been a really fun project, actually. So this is what one, one we actually call the Space Obscope uh, Project. And it's basically building a backyard radio telescope that can observe radio waves from across the galaxy. And it kind of started a bit of a joke between my friend and I to be honest. And we're, you know, we were having wine one Friday afternoon, I think it was November last year, and sitting so on a couch and we're like, let's go, let's let's build something. Let's let's do something like let's, let's try to be guide and let's, let's let's find something to build. And we thought we let's let build a telescope, you know, and we thought we were at the time we we're thinking an optical telescope, but then we came across some plans to build a radio telescope from instruction, but they were from the US. And they were kind of missing a lot of information. Like, they had the basics, like, yes, go build here, build this to this dimension, stick it all together, and then, you know, start observing. But it, it didn't seem like it was fulfilled. So we decided to set up a bit of a community around this. So we thought, let's build as a bit of a project and get people involved in this as well, getting them to learn whilst we're learning as well. Because everyone that was actually involved pretty much came from scratch of building a radio telescope. I don't think anyone actually had ever built a radio telescope before, to be honest. Um, and that's what made it quite fun. It made, made it really a bit of a community because all, we, all of a sudden we had these people that were saying, yes, like I'm, I'm a parent, and I've got three kids and I want to build a radio telescope. But we had a couple of schools saying, yes, our classrooms would love to do this. We had some astronomers who, you know, optical astronomers or you know, high energy astronomers were like, well, this sounds great. I'd I'll, I'll be happy to jump in on this as well. And the community it created was quite nice because effectively you had a range of different people with a range of different knowledge all supporting each other in, in, in this build across all different teams as well. So in particular, our team was building, here in Sydney, in Darwin, in particular, we're building three different telescope prototypes. Now, what I wanted to do was document my process all the way through. It's from the point of actually the idea, all the way to the point of actually saying, yes, I've got a final product. And then publish these results to show people everything that happened about the project, not just the instructions of how to build it, but also the costs, the learnings involved, the places I went for to buy all my equipment and all my gear, the time involved, uh, the type of data each telescope receives, the difference between the different prototypes we're building based on the different materials we're using. Effectively, I wanted to be able to give future builders the opportunity to build their own telescopes and have a choice based on the budgets they had and based on their availability of access to uh, you know for example there's bunnings here in sydney but there might not be a bunnings in a regional town in you know out, outback wa or something like that so therefore we try to build these telescopes based also on stuff that you can get that is around the house things like aluminium foil things like cardboard things like uh olive oil cans that you can sort of empty out the olive oil and just sort of rip off the top and create, create a waveguide or even laundry baskets for example so there were some components that we still needed to order online. For example, yeah, electronics. That's we, we didn't build those from scratch at all. We had to order those offline off suppliers. But everything else in our project design was designed to be accessible to as many people as possible so that when we actually have a finished product, when we have, when we have this all out there on the internet all finalised with our designs and our progress and our stories, um, people can look at it and go, yep, I can do that. I can access all those materials. I can afford all this stuff. I can go build a telescope and I can be able to produce this kind of data from it. Now, we've got one of our, our Sydney team has got one of our prototypes finished, but due to COVID and of course uni kicked in as well by this point, um, our team has been unable to finish the last two. So I'm hoping to get back into it this summer and get it going again. A few people from around the country have finished their telescopes and they were collecting data as it was looking really good. And these aren't regular telescopes, These 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 are, sorry, these are regular optical telescopes, they're horn antennas. So the data we receive from them is not so much an image, a beautiful image of a night sky or a nebula or a galaxy, but rather it's a signal or a plot that we, that we observe on, on the software that we use. And in particular, the signal that we're looking at represents a region from around our galaxies, which are where stars are born. So it's it's 1.42 gigahertz signal that we receive, and it's related to the cold hydrogen gas reserves across the Milky Way. Um, so as you'll, many of you know from our previous speakers, This is caused by, you know, the spin flip of an electron in a simple hydrogen atom. Uh, When the electron goes from an excited state to a ground state, uh, in that process it releases a a photon and the wavelength of that photon is 21 centimetres or 1.42 gigahertz. Now, our horn antennas are designed to just pick up that frequency. It picks up background frequency as well, but that's the main frequency we're looking for as well. Now, what that tells us is that when we point our telescope at different parts of the sky, and the wonderful thing about radio astronomy is that you can do it during the day and night, even on cloudy days sometimes. It tells us a little bit more about where these reserves are and where these you know these cold hydrogen gas reserves are as well. So that's kind of what we've built. Um, at this stage, we're about to finish. I'm going to get back into it um, soon over summer, and I'm going to finish the last two telescopes, and uh, I'll release all that data as well. So at this stage, i would ask people to hold on um, just a little bit longer whilst we finish our prototyping and our data collection. And once that's finished, I'll be able to release so that information and people can go build their own as they see fit. Come back in a few months, and we'll hopefully have an answer for you as well.
0: What a fantastic project. That's so cool. Thank you. Thanks, Rami. Now, citizen science really is fabulous. And with those affordable technologies and accessible tutorials, any person of any age and background can make real contributions to our understanding of the universe and looks like having a lot of fun in citizen science communities. Now, that reminds me, Rami, that in our current COVID-19 world, citizen science projects like yours can also help maintain and, well, boost our mental health. Looking at your social media feed, you've got someone who supports both your mental and physical health. Tell us about Balmain Max. Oh, oh
1: well, mate, Maxie. <laughs> um, yeah, look, he's an absolute gem. And, he, and, and we, we do everything together um, whenever I can get out of the house. It really is amazing how much pets um, help us throughout day. And as you said, you know, with our mental health and our physical health. It's been an absolute contribution towards how uh, I've progressed, especially through this pandemic. You know, I've been trying to stay indoors much as, I, as much as I can during the pandemic, obviously like everyone else. But I've been enjoying my one afternoon walks, afternoon walks, and my long walks with Max as well, or heading to the dog beach, with him when we can. It's a great way um, because you know when you're doing research or when you're studying or when you're just involved with things that are generally online, you kind of sit in front of a computer for a lot of the time and you're you're stuck in the online world a bit. But it's actually great. It's a great having a pet is a great way to remind you to get up and go outside and walk around and get some fresh air and reconnect with the outside world a bit. And that helps stimulate my brain. You know, it helps stimulate the way I think and I feel a bit more fresher when I get back. Um, and he gets to socialise and explore the world too, which is always fun to watch. And I love watching bug psychology and the way they think and sort of process things. And we've had this here with a pup, so he's actually part of the family as much as, and, and we do as much as we can with him. Yeah, he's a bit of a critter. He's got his own little hashtag on Instagram and uh, Twitter, hashtag Balmain Max. A lot of the locals know him as Balmain Max, that's why we call him that. And, uh, yeah, he's quite fun to have around
0: Fantastic. I love Max. Thank you. Now, the mic's all yours, Rami, and you've got the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the equity or diversity challenges that we face in our science communities um, in outreach or science denialism or career paths or your own passion for research, your project on the pulsar timing or citizen science radio telescopes or simply humanity's quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours.
1: Great, thanks you. And I actually have two messages today and I'll keep them both uh, relatively short as well. So um at the time of recording this, I guess the first message is mainly directed at uh, your US audience. You know, over the next few days I would love to urge you all to go out and vote, please. It's Really troubling to see all the things that have happened in the U.S. over the last few years, and there's a chance to make things better from now on. But you do need to vote. Um, and look, whilst I'm not in the U.S. myself, my entire mum's family in America, mum's American, and some of my best friends are, are all in the U.S. And you know, a lot of what happens there also impacts us here around the world. So things like climate change, policy progression, or lack thereof, for example. So my second message is a bit more generic and applies to everyone, I guess. But in particular, those who are already in the science industries and have a position of influence and power as well. I'd like them all to consider uh, doing everything they can to make it less challenging for people from a diverse range of backgrounds to also get involved in science. Now basically, if someone tells you that doing science is too hard, you should ask them why and then try to fix that and and try to fix that process. Like if they're saying it's too hard, something's really hard about science, I mean, there's, there's, there might be an education barrier. There might be a language barrier. There might be something there that that is within our power to change. So we've got to remind ourselves that people don't come from a position of privilege where they can afford to go to universities right after school. So they might get there when they a little bit older or, you know, after they've learnt a the language. So consider minority groups and, you know, people of colour and, and, and different sort of walks of life um, having to deal with these issues um, and, you know, accepting them more broadly into our science communities. And the great thing is that the future of science is in the hands of the gatekeepers, which are the people of science uh, these days. So this is 100% achievable and, and, we, can, and we can make this better for everyone. Uh, and as countless amounts of research has actually shown, the diversity amongst us actually amplifies our productivity. So um, if you look around the workplace and you don't see much diversity or you don't see much diversity in your research or on, on your websites or on your digital assets, or you know, just ask yourself why and ask yourself how we can improve this. That'll be my message.
0: Fantastic. You yeah, here yeah. Thanks, Rami. Now, before we go, is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mentioned one or two of them already. Like, For example, uh, Kat Ross's Include Her campaign is, uh, I think, going to be something that's going to be quite game-changing for you know uh, the education curriculum i think it's really good keep your eye on that and of course you know work of you know Corey retard and the deadly science team it's amazing work we're doing so it's really important to keep your eye on that you know from i guess from a space community perspective i'd like to take the opportunity if i can to sort of invite everyone you know astronomers engineers communicators to get in touch with me if you'd like us to share your work on our platform as well you know we're a community platform we're not so much a media platform and you know, you can either write the story and we can use some editorial guidance or we can write the story for you and get some quotes of you. But it doesn't matter which way we do it. What matters is that we get your research and your science out into the community so it inspires the next generation of young people to follow in your footsteps. And that's a big thing for me. You know, so if if, if that's something that you're interested in, please uh, feel free to get in touch. I'd be happy to, uh, you know, share your news with the world.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Rami Mando. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you, and thank you especially for your time in your amazing schedule. Um, We'll encourage all listeners to put spaceaustralia.com into your favourites bar and make sure you follow Rami. He's at Cosmic Rami, that's capital C O S M I C capital R A M I, Cosmic Rami, and at SpaceOS dot com that's s-p-a-c-e-a-u-s-d-o-t-c-o-m on twitter fantastic and rami does great posts and his finger is right on the pulse finally congratulations rami and good luck especially for your master's research and with the parks pulsar timing project i'm really looking forward to hearing more about that thanks rami
1: Thank you, Brendan, and thanks for the chat. And also, Brendan, I just want to say thank you as well for your, um, for your wonderful Fizz podcast. Um, I know many people like myself have been able to experience firsthand and you know, firsthand accounts of um, a lot of our local amazing science talent through this podcast. So thank you for making this such a great space to, uh, to share with the world.
0: Thanks a lot. Fantastic. See you, Rami. See you, Brendan. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored. And we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandau at spaceaustralia.com. And another great astro podcast is The Scientists with Kirsten Banks and Dr. Ankel Lopez Sanchez. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. Till then. Isolate, take care, look after yourself and your loved ones. And please do wear a mask when you can't socially distance yourself. Radio Away!